At this point in any other trustee's lecture, I would run down the speaker's list of accomplishments. But it seems silly to add a biographical introduction to what will be, at its heart, an autobiographical talk. Charlie's going to mention his childhood, how he was bitten by the history bug, and so on and so on. And it seems equally superfluous to somehow try and list Charlie's bona fides to you now. I have a sneaking suspicion that many of you are at least vaguely familiar with our speaker's resume. I guess I could cite the statistics for you to indicate Charlie's transformative effect on this institution. But since Charlie announced his plans to retire, the facts and figures that bear witness to this have flowed like a river. We've heard about our growth in visitation, size of expanded facilities, levels of financial support, and much more. So it doesn't make much sense for me to add to that torrent of facts and figures. Instead, what it seems I can add right here on this momentous evening is to point out something that has not received the attention that I think it deserves, Charlie's effect on those around him. This is not something you can measure or easily define, but I think anyone who has ever met Charlie can attest to his infectious enthusiasm and to how it rubs off on you. I've never asked him if at one point in life he considered a career in the ministry. But I do know this. When it comes to sharing his love of history and his belief in the powerful force it can play in our lives, he is a true evangelist. I mean, just look at the staff that he assembled here. How many other senior management teams have survived basically intact for two decades? And I think most of the talented folks in that group will agree that Charlie's enthusiasm and inspiration have played an enormous role in their willingness to spend their professional careers serving the VHS and its mission. The same holds true for the remarkable base of support for the VHS that Charlie has helped build. How many people over the past 20 years have said, I want to be a part of what's going on down there at the boulevard, because they heard Charlie speak or struck up a conversation with him about what, the latest history book, what was the latest history book he had read? Probably many of you are nodding your heads right now. Well, I can attest to the power of his energy and enthusiasm firsthand. When I interviewed for my first position here at the VHS, I had a wonderful interview with Nelson Langford, and my mind was basically made up that I would take the job if it was offered to me. But what cinched it was a trip down the hall to meet Charlie Bryan. After saying my goodbyes here at the VHS shortly thereafter, I spent a long time on my drive back to Chapel Hill talking to my wife Kristen on the phone. As we both weighed the pros and cons of a move to Richmond and work at the VHS, I said something like, just you wait until you meet the director. Anything he's, he, he is leading, I want to be a part of. Well, I soon learned that my initial impressions were spot on. As a junior member of the staff, I always felt fortunate when Charlie involved me in a discussion or sought out my opinion on something, and it always energized me. And over the last six months, when I've worked side by side with him, during this transition period, my admiration for Charlie and how he inspires others has only grown. And I continue to be astounded by the energy he displays. Many of you know that I come from the supposedly big, bustling city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Charlie is from the relatively small town of McMinnville, Tennessee. Now, how do you suppose tends to walk faster? This spring, when I first started accompanying Charlie to meet with trustees, donors, and others, he and I would often leave together. Well, if you've ever been on a trip down a staircase with Charlie Bryan, when you were due at an appointment, 
you know that you would better be wearing comfortable shoes. It's not so much a walk as a headlong plunge, a descent at a very rapid rate, and I would often find myself half running across the lobby just to catch up with him. Whether during these trips, downstairs or out of the building or just sitting in his office, Charlie has taken me into his confidence and shared a career's worth of experience about matters big and small. He's been candid about his successes and his failures, his good ideas and his bad ones. Not that there have been many of those. But. And you know what? He even let me in on a dirty little secret. And since you're all such good friends, I'll take you in on the same confidence. Do you know it's not the Freemasons or the Rosicrucians that run things around here? It's VMI grads. <laughs> Some of you probably already knew that, but for some, that's a revelation. (laughs) And lest my lack of a VMI diploma be a hindrance to this job, rest assured, he did give me the secret handshake, so. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I have to take this opportunity to thank Charlie publicly for all that he has done for me professionally and personally, and for his consideration and his kindness. It all means more than I can ever tell him. Long my boss, Charlie, you've become my friend. And my friend, I'm humbled by the opportunity to help perpetuate the legacy of your work here. Tonight, I also want to recognize the members of Charlie's family in attendance, his wife, Cammie, his daughter, Alethea, and his son, Charles, their spouses, Glenn and Angela, the relatively new light in Charlie's life, his grandson, Graham, who is actually not here, his mother-in-law, Carolyn Martin, and brother-in-law, Battle Haslam. Thank you all for sharing Charlie with us, for supporting him and lending much-needed balance to his life. It is clear to any of us who know him how central you are all to his very existence. Well, you've heard enough of this opening act, and I swore I wouldn't cry, but I think uh, you're probably ready for the headliner. So please join me in welcoming our friend, Charles Faulkner Bryan, Jr., I don't know if you realize this, but you're going to be the 15th Chief Executive Officer of the Virginia Historical Society. And I can think of no one else who I would rather turn the key over to the VHS than to you. We're all listed, and your name is on there, and your end date, which will be at least 20 years from now. (laughs) So congratulations. I hope you'll hang that in your office. Thank you, Charles. And I'll have more to say about you in a few minutes. Well, I decided I would talk about my journey to the Virginia Historical Society, and I thought about thanking people, but there's so many people I could thank tonight that I would always leave someone out. But I want to talk about how history begins at home. And I'll take us back a while. Sometime in the spring of 1818, a man and his wife acted on a decision that had been perhaps years in the making. His name was Nelson, and her name was Polly. 
And whatever their reasoning, they prepared for a fateful journey that would take them to a new home far away. Now, the particulars of why they were doing that are not known. Records indicate that Nelson had been born in Halifax County in 1782, and he grew up in the community, present-day community of Natalie, Virginia. He had married Polly Petty in 1806, and over the next 12 years, they had six children. And the family made their living as farmers. But by 1818, powerful forces pulled or pushed them westward. Now, we don't know. Were they unhappy with their lot in Virginia? Or were they drawn by reports of good land and opportunities in the West? We can only speculate. But when it came time to leave, Nelson and Polly more than likely packed up as much as they could in a wagon or two. They probably said tearful goodbyes to family and friends. And with their six children, they headed west. They traveled south along the great immigrant highway between the Blue Ridge and the Allegheny Mountains. And there they would have met scores of other families who had made the same decision. And indeed, it it was a time that Virginia seemed to be bleeding to death. The Old Dominion was mired in a decades-long depression. And as a result, a large and steady flow of Virginians left their native land for better opportunities elsewhere. Some scholars estimate that between the end of the Revolution and the beginning of the Civil War, more than a million people left Virginia. Well, Nelson and Polly's family were part of that mass migration, and their experience, therefore, would have been typical. Well, in addition to meeting other families along the way, they would have seen gangs of slaves being transported for sale at high prices in the Deep South. Indeed, about a third of those who left Virginia during this period were slaves. Some six weeks into the journey, they crossed into Tennessee near Bristol, and days later at Knoxville, they headed due west. In a week or so, they they climbed the Great Cumberland Plateau, and there they followed a primitive road that had been used by other immigrants for more than 40 years. We know that Cherokee Indians had traveled over the same pathway for longer than anyone could remember. Several days later, some two months after leaving Virginia, Nelson and his family came to what would become their new home. They rolled their wagon down the Highland Rim into a land of rich soil, in wide stream bottoms in Middle Tennessee. And they halted at a place called Shop Springs, about eight miles south of Lebanon, Tennessee, which is east of Nashville. And their journey had ended. Now, why did they stop? We really don't know. We know that several families from Virginia had moved there the previous decade. An old friend or a relative may have sent regular communications to Virginia about the good land around Shop Springs. But Nelson and Polly came to stay and prosper. But many of their children picked up where they left off and continued the great folk migration. And we know that some of their offspring moved to other parts of Tennessee, to Missouri, Texas, and California. And by doing that, they continued a cycle of family moves that had begun in Scotland and Northern Ireland centuries before. Well, I'm finished with that story for now, but I will come back to it a little bit later. But in case you haven't guessed, Nelson and Polly Bryan were my great, great great-grandparents. And for now, I want to use their story as a point of illustration. Even though that story is about my family, I think most of you were listening, and maybe you were doing it out of politeness, or maybe it's because it's a compelling story that could be told by millions of families, and maybe it could be told by your family. Think about it. It's the story of leaving home and finding a new one, 
of taking chances in hopes of finding a better future, of leaving friends and family and moving in among strangers, of seeking opportunity, of having dreams about the future and holding on to those dreams. Well, with those things in mind, it's a story that is relevant to today and relevant to all of us in this room. Because in one way or another, we've all experienced what Nelson and Polly did, although in a different time and in a different place. And I hope that you can make that connection from the past to today. And to me, that's one of the great values of history. It helps put our own lives in some kind of perspective. Well, unfortunately, not everyone gets the relevance of history. Many people don't even like it. I've long wondered why do some people love history and others hate it? Now, are we born with it, or is it an acquired taste like beer? And what induced some of us to make careers out of it? Even when we knew that the jobs were scarce and we would never become wealthy. And finally, think of this yourself. What exactly sparked your initial interest in history? Was it a teacher? A book? A movie? Was it something you saw on television, perhaps a visit to a museum, or was it a parent or a grandparent? Now, with all of those questions in mind, please allow me to indulge in a bit of autobiography. And I do so to share with you how I became fascinated with history early in my life, so much so that I eventually made a career out of it. But I also want to show you how history can shape someone's whole life. I've wondered what did it for me. Was it a teacher? Well, I had mixed results there. I had one who was wonderfully imaginative in her teaching of history, but I also had the football coach. <laughs> they say half of the first names of history teachers in America, it, the name is coach. But Well, to this coach, history meant talking about the previous week's football game. Well, books helped bring history alive for me. I remember those young person's biographies, and then I graduated to landmark books many of you may have read. We used to visit the Forbidding Old State Museum in Nashville. All of those things, the teacher, books, museums, drew me to the past. But although they never knew it, two people had more to do with my becoming a historian than anything else. One was my grandfather, and the other was my mother. And it was a traumatic event early in my life that placed them in that position of shaping my future. And that event was my father's sudden death of a massive heart attack. He was only 43 years old when he died, leaving a widow who would never remarry, my sister Betty, and me. And his death also cut short a brilliant career as a musician and composer, a career that had taken him to Carnegie Hall and merited him an obituary in the New York Times. I was only eight years old when he died, but I was too young to know it. But that personal tragedy was a turning point in my life. And it was the first of many turning points that led me to where I am today. And I am convinced that had my father lived, my life would have been very different from what it has turned out to be. And would it have been as rewarding and as fulfilling? Of course, I'll never know. But from a few formal studies and my own observation, for most people, history is an acquired taste. It comes later in life when they become more reflective and less distracted by 
the demands of school and a new career and starting a family. But for me, my whole life has been shaped by history, both personally and professionally. Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm convinced that my grandfather and my mother in the home we lived in are largely responsible for my life with history. My grandfather, who was a widower, lived in a house that wasn't just any home. You see, after my father's death, my mother moved us back to the community of Faulkner Springs near McMimble, Tennessee, as Paul mentioned, which is in Middle Tennessee, and that's where my parents had been raised. And actually, we moved in with my grandfather. And over the next 10 years, he had a profound influence over me, as did the house in which we lived. And the house was named Falconhurst. And it was built by my great-great-uncle Asa Faulkner. And it had been in our family's hands since 1848. And by living there, I couldn't escape history. For one, the physical evidence of the past surrounded me. Every spring when we plowed the garden, we found handfuls of pottery pieces, coins, buttons, and clay pipes. And my grandfather told me that the garden was located on the site of the old slave quarters. And adventures along the nearby creek at Faulkner Springs almost always made me think of the past. Along its banks were the ruins of Faulkner's, Asa Faulkner's once vibrant uh, woolen mill. The swimming hole in the creek was just above the dam that Asa had built in the early 1850s to power his mill. And the banks of the creek and the nearby fields yielded other treasures from the past, arrowheads. And they revealed that the area had been in, uh, the ancient hunting ground long before the arrival of white people and their slaves. Well, in addition to the physical evidence of the past that surrounded me, I had regular encounters with history from another source, my grandfather and my mother. Almost from the moment we moved, that's me, I hate to say it. <laughs> that is I. Almost from the moment we moved in with my grandfather, he told me stories about the past, stories of our family. He told me about Yankee soldiers riding up to his father's home and taking all of the family's livestock one winter during the Civil War. A week later, a Confederate patrol came to the farm and stripped the family of virtually all of the remaining foodstuff. And my grandfather's father, my great-grandfather, who was only 12 years old, he and his brothers spent the rest of the winter in the woods and fields hunting squirrels, rabbits, and deer to keep the family fed. My grandfather also told me about those dreadful last few days of 1862 when nearly 25,000 men fell at the Battle of Murfreesboro. And even though the battle was nearly 35 or 40 miles away, the family could distinctly hear the rumble of cannon in the distance for three days, knowing full well that they had loved ones and neighbors who might be dying in the battle. And my grandfather said every time his father heard the coming of a thunderstorm and the rumble of thunder in the distance, he would think of, of that, those last three days. Now, my mother was a storyteller, too. She was a high school teacher, and her Latin cl classes were more like a course in ancient history. But she told us tales of our family that had been passed on to her, of my great-great-great-grandfather from Virginia who had fought in the Continental Line with Washington. She told me about the deadly flu epidemic of 1918 and how she survived it, but she lost her beloved Aunt Stella of being terrified as a little girl when the first airplane she had ever laid eyes on flew low over the family farm. And then she told the hilarious story of her father bringing home a new food product from his store. He said that everyone was raving about this product and he wanted the family to try it at dinner. Well, after reading the instructions on the box, he dumped the entire contents in a bowl, poured in the milk as the instructions recommended. 
And within a matter of minutes, after eating a few spoonfuls, the family stared at a soggy mess in the bowl and wondered what was so special about this new product called cornflakes. <laughs> well, because of these tales, often told on the front porch, the past had captured my imagination. It excited me, and it awed me, and it was true. It, t- it told me the story of my family, who we were, and where we came from. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but it connect- connected me in time and place to the world in which I was growing up. And the world in the late 50s and early 60s was changing rapidly. It was full of paradoxes. I grew up in a time and place in which an event that occurred a century before was an important part of my being, the Civil War. A photo of Robert E. Lee hung on the wall of my room. Elizabeth, you might be interested in that. My best friend, Greg Embry, and I spent countless hours refighting the Battle of Gettysburg with a popular board game at the time. Greg was originally from up north and always played the role of Union Commander George Meade. I was always Robert E. Lee, and I went in a blue funk every time my luck was no better than the real Mars Robert. I used to fantasize scenarios of the South winning the Civil War. Of course, I gave no thought to the fact that Southern victory would have been a triumph for the institution of slavery or the consequences of a divided American nation in the 20th century. How would we have been able to defeat the Nazism in Germany or, or Japanese imperialism? I'm not sure. But frankly, I was far too young to think so broadly about the true meaning of the Civil War. I was too surrounded by the vestiges of the lost cause. My teenage years coincided with the Civil War centennial. My high school stood on the site of a sharp skirmish fought in 1863. We were the McMinnville City High Rebels, and our mascot was, of all things, Mr. Rebel. (laughs) And it's no irony that City High experienced a profound change my senior year when the first African Americans began to attend. And frankly, it was an event that barely caused a ripple in our community, perhaps because of the relatively small black population in the town. In retrospect, I was strangely strangely detached from the momentous social changes that were occurring then. Now, my family were by no means civil rights activists. For that matter, several of my ancestors had been slaveholders. But I grew up in a home in which I was constantly reminded that I was no better than anyone else because of my skin color. And the N-word was strictly forbidden in our home. I was aware that my late father risked being fired from his university teaching job for a breach of the racial code of the time. My mother proudly told me how he secretly taught a gifted and but untutored African-American singer how to sing properly. And at night, my mother taught him how to read and write. And this young man went on to study music in New York and 10 years later made his European debut at the Royal Albert Hall in London. And I vividly remember frequent visits from one of my grandfather's best friends, Mr. Roy Webb. They spent countless hours on our front porch swapping stories but this was still the segregated South. Both men abided by the long-established racial social etiquette of the time, and as far as I know, Roy Webb never had a meal at our house, nor did we eat at his home. Mr. Webb addressed my grandfather as Mr. Clarence, and to him my mother was Miss Edith, and while my grandfather and mother addressed him simply as Roy. The divisions between the white and black communities in town were still very much in place. The balcony of the Park Theater was designated strictly for African Americans, and I remember well the separate bathrooms and water fountains at the county courthouse and other public buildings. And frankly, it was only in retrospect, as I began to study the history of racial relations in America, that I realized that tacitly 
My family and I were agents of, agencies, agents of the injustices of the time by simply allowing it to exist. For me, there were really more important things in life then. Even though I grew up in the South during the Civil Rights Movement, it was the Civil War centennial that absorbed me, which was very much a, a white person's event then. And perhaps my being oblivious to these things was related to other things going on in my life. I really wasn't a complete Civil War nerd or a history nerd. I did take an interest in other things. Sports, my first car, my weekend job at my uncle's hardware store, lots of high school activities, and of course, girls. I also began to think about my future. And when it came time for me to choose a college, there was little doubt in my mind. That decision had been determined since I was in the eighth grade. My sister had long dated a young man from Birmingham, Alabama, named John Battle Haslam, who's with us tonight, who went to the Virginia Military Institute. And attending Battle's graduation in 1961 had a profound influence on me. Uh, that weekend, I saw cadets in handsome gray uniforms marching smartly on parade. I saw Stonewall Jackson's statue in front of the barracks. I visited Lee Chapel on the campus of Washington and Lee University where my boyhood hero, hero was in tune. And I returned home knowing exactly where I wanted to go to college. And come my senior year of high school when most of my friends planned to head off to Knoxville and Nashville for college, my destination was Lexington, Virginia. Well, in retro retrospect, it was history that drew me to VMI. The Stonewall Jackson connection, the story of the brave young cadets at Newmarket, in the nearby presence of Lee. And it should come as no surprise that I decided early on to major in history. Now, I must confess that decision was not based solely on my love of history, but also because I was a terrible student in math and chemistry. <laughs> to this day, I haven't quite figured out the valence chart of elements. And I simply hated those algebra word problems the ones revolving around a train leaving Chicago at a certain time and speed, <laughs> and another leaving New York at a different time and speed. I, I haven't figured that one out yet. But little did I know that taking that college algebra course my first year at VMI would profoundly affect my life. Why, you ask? Well, it definitely wasn't what I learned or more accurately didn't learn in the class taught by a very demanding professor. His name was Joe Martin. A native Tennessean like me and a highly decorated World War II veteran. And he had little patience for history majors who couldn't quite grasp the meaning of cosines, complex variables, and coefficients. And between his high expectations and my math challenge mind, I flunked his course. In addition to my failure in math, I came up with an F in chemistry as well. And as a result, I was forced to attend summer school at VMI the end of my rat year. Now, frankly, I would have preferred returning to Tennessee for the summer, but flunking math and chemistry constituted another turning point in my life. You see, during my struggles in the classroom, I met a very cute and pretty blonde student <laughs> from Mary Baldwin College named Cammie, and I was immediately attracted to her, and we started dating that summer. Within a matter of months, I was in love. Now, this wasn't just any blonde I was dating. She was Major Martin's daughter, the math professor who had flung me. <laughs> it's true. 
Well, fortunately, my unsuccessful foray in his math class didn't prevent me from dating his daughter. We were both from Middle Tennessee. We had extended family connections, and they must have overcome any doubts he had had about me. Also, I love to pump him with questions about his World War II experience that took him from North Africa to the heart of Germany. And it didn't take long for Joe and Carolyn Martin to embrace me. I looked for any excuse I could find to have one of Carolyn's home-cooked meals rather than eat in the mess hall. And what an advantage it was to have their home on the VMI post as a refuge and to have their daughter just up the road at Mary Baldwin in Stanton. It certainly made my last three years at the Institute easier than that of most cadets. In the meantime, by my third year, I began to think a lot about my future. I, like most young people then and now, really didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. I had a two-year Army obligation to fulfill, but I really wasn't interested in a military career. The war in Southeast Asia loomed over us every day we were at the Institute. Hardly a week went by that we didn't receive word of a VMI alum being killed in Vietnam. My brother Rats and I would not dodge our obligations to serve. In all honesty, most of us were not anxious to ship off to the jungles of Southeast Asia. Eventually, about a fourth of my class ended up in Vietnam, and four of my brother rats were killed in action. But by the time I entered the Army, I was on the path to becoming a historian, and I already had a master's degree under my belt. You see, the year before I graduated from VMI in 1969, I had an epiphany one day. Returning to my room in barracks after a fascinating lecture on the Great Depression, it came to me. I said, why not become a historian? I love history. I think I would enjoy teaching. My parents have been teachers. And so by my last year at VMI, I began to apply to several history graduate schools. Cammie, who had become my fiance, approved. Certainly the idea was not foreign to her. Let's face it, she had grown up as the daughter of a college professor. I'm not sure why I did this, but I decided to go to the first graduate school to accept me, the University of Georgia. Well, Cammie and I got married a month after I graduated from VMI on Flag Day in 1969. Two months later, we headed off for Athens, Georgia, where we moved into married student housing. And for the next year and a half, poor Cammie saw little of her new husband. She worked for a most unpleasant woman in the university library for a grand total of $200 a month, which was our sole source of income. I, on the other hand, was in my glory. I was married to the love of my, of my life. I didn't have to wear a uniform. I didn't have to march in parades. I didn't have to salute my professors. And I didn't have to live in barracks. And all my courses were in history. No more math, no more chemistry, no more economics. It was pure history, and I was in my glory. And I worked harder than I ever had, and I did well in my coursework, concentrating on the period of Civil War and Reconstruction. I wrote a decent master's thesis on a unionist from Tennessee who eventually became a Confederate general and died in battle outside of Richmond. With my master's degree in hand, I spent the next two years with Uncle Sam. Now, my original orders had me going to Vietnam, but by the time I finished my officer's basic course in 1971, the war was winding down. And as a result, my new orders assigned me as an instructor at the armor school at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Guess what I taught? Well, as I said earlier, history has been a part of almost every aspect of my life. I have been trained as a tank commander with all the requisite knowledge of how to lead a platoon of M60 tanks. But when the powers that be discovered that I had done graduate work in history, I found myself in class teaching military history 
rather than commanding a tank. And needless to say, Cammie and I were greatly relieved that I would be staying stateside. And with a lieutenant's monthly salary of $750 in free housing, we felt downright rich. I gained invaluable teaching experience, and I was even able to publish a couple of journal, journal articles. Cammie and I uh, became parents when our daughter, Alethea, was born several weeks before my discharge. Well, concerning my discharge, we found that our after-army plans took a turn that we had not expected. From the moment I entered the service, there was no doubt in my mind what I would do after my two-year obligation. I would return to the University of Georgia to work on my Ph.D., so in the fall of 1972, nine months before my discharge, a pregnant Cammie and I drove back to Athens to prepare for my, my return. Cammie would look for a job, we would look for an apartment. I would talk to the history department chairman about teaching assistantships and the courses I would take. But the meeting didn't turn out the way I had anticipated. The department head, who seemed unusually nervous, informed me that the job market was being glutted with too many PhDs in history. Then he told me that Georgia was reducing the number of Ph.D. students it would accept. Then the bombshell. I would not be admitted into the Ph.D. program at Georgia. He informed me that my undergraduate grade point average was too low. Yes, my math and chemistry grades of VMI had come back to bite me. <laughs> well, as you might imagine, I was stunned. Cammie and I drove back in silence to Tennessee and to Falconhurst to tell my mother the news. And my mind was racked with doubt. Our first child was on the way. My good army salary would end the next summer with my discharge. And Georgia's decision to cut back because of the glut of PhDs gave me reason for pause. Indeed, the academic publications of the time were giving a grim litany of too many PhDs and too few jobs. Maybe I should give up my dream of becoming a historian. Maybe I should get a real job, perhaps in my uncle's hardware store. Or maybe I should stay in the army. But my mother's advice swayed me to stick with my dream. This is a temporary setback, she counseled. Something good will come out of it. Then she reflected on her own experience with my father. After all, she had been married to a musician during the Great Depression. And she knew the importance of sticking with your dreams. You love history, Charlie, and I don't think you would be happy doing anything else. She then told me that being a teacher is a calling because you can make a difference in shaping the lives of young people. She then urged me to apply to some other graduate schools. And bless them, Cammie's parents said virtually the same, same thing. They too had known what it was like to sacrifice and pursue a PhD. Well, the support and encouragement of our parents proved crucial. I applied to several graduate schools and by the time I left the Army, I decided on the University of Tennessee. UT offered me a deal I couldn't refuse, a teaching assistantship and a waiver of tuition. But get this, my letter of acceptance signed by the department head, Dr. Graff, ended with this dire warning. I'm quoting, because of the exceptionally tight job market, you must realize that finding a job in history, the history field will be extremely difficult. In other words, enter at your own peril. <laughs> well, I did. But going to UT was one of the best decisions I ever made. The group of graduate students who entered with me were exceptional and most have gone on to distinguish careers in the profession. The friendly competition that existed between us made us all work hard and to become better historians. And the professors seemed determined to make the UT PhD program as rigorous as any in the country, especially my major professor, Paul Bergeron. Then there was the legendary Milton Klein. He puffed on big black cigars in the classroom 
And he bellowed questions at us in his seminar, and he terrified us. He was intimidating, but he was the greatest professor I ever had. And little did I realize then that many years later, he would be a major factor in one of the most important turning points in my life. But I'll come to that in a few minutes. Working on my PhD was an invigorating experience. My dissertation on the Civil War in East Tennessee made me rethink my sympathies for the Confederacy that had held sway in my youth. I was able to uncover information on the harsh treatment and persecution of East Tennessee Unionists by Confederate authorities. Then, much to my surprise, I discovered that some of my Bryan and Faulkner ancestors had been Unionists during the Civil War. I'd never been told this by my grandfather. <laughs> if he told me, it didn't register. And the more I learned, the more my boyhood fantasies of Confederate victory faded into oblivion. Well, despite the pleasures of working on my dissertation, life was not easy, especially that last year when my GI Bill ran out. Lo and behold, Cammy got pregnant. We had no insurance and little money. We lived in married student ghettos, ugly, <laughs> ugly cinder block bunkers that were too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. And although the timing wasn't the best, Charles III was born on August the 13th, 1977, just three days before the death of Elvis. <laughs> the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. <laughs> well, the, despite the joy of a new son, that last year in graduate school was a tough one. Charles was not a well baby, nor was Cammy. I was writing my dissertation, teaching five courses at the local community college to make ends meet. And looming over us was that prospect of no job at the end of the pipeline. And I, again, began to consider other career, careers. My uncle's hardware store, I kept going back to my uncle's hardware store, <laughs> turning my avocation of photography into a job. But I had such a strong ambition to become a historian that I forged ahead. And, of course, most of my colleagues and I assumed that being a historian meant being a professor. We didn't think of careers outside of the classroom but teaching jobs were almost impossible to find. One of my fellow graduate students was triumphant when he landed a two-year appointment at a community college in eastern Kentucky, and the rest of us were filled with envy. In the meantime, I continued to apply for teaching jobs and even did some interviews, but it was a discouraging endeavor. I can't help but think our parents were worried and wondered if their grandchildren would be raised in poverty. Well, with my luck running out, I finally accepted a postdoctoral fellowship with the papers of Andrew Jackson at the Hermitage in Nashville. And little did I know that I had begun a career path in history outside of the classroom, what is often referred to as public history. Well, after the one-year postdoc, I was made assistant editor and stayed for three years at the Jackson papers. It was a good experience, but I knew it wasn't something that I wanted to make a career of. I enjoyed being around people and the lonely work of documentary editing lost its appeal to me. And I continued to apply for teaching jobs in hopes of finally landing one. Finally, in the summer of 1981, I interviewed for a tenure-track teaching job, and lo and behold, I received a call that I had been selected. The author, offer came from a branch of the University of South Carolina near Myrtle Beach. But would you believe I turned it down? Yes, I turned it down because of another offer I received the very same day. And that decision would constitute another crucial turning point in my life. A few weeks earlier, I had been contacted by Bob Cook, president of the East Tennessee Historical Society in Knoxville. 
Now, the ETHS was a distinguished old institution that had fallen on hard times. Its membership was declining, its scholarly journal had fallen far behind schedule, and few people came to its programs. And Bob Cook practically begged me to come back to Knoxville and become its first executive director. I said, Bob, I don't have any experience running a historical society. He said, oh, if anyone can do it, Charlie, you can. Well, a few days later, I drove to Knoxville to talk turkey. I met with several board members. They told me that if, if I didn't come, the ETHS would die. <laughs> they laid the guilt on me, and then they dangled big bucks in front of me, an annual salary of $18,000. Well, I was barely making $16,000 at the Jackson Papers, and those $2,000 extra dollars meant a, yacht, a lot to a young professor of four. And during all that, I received a call from the University of South Carolina offering me the teaching job, and it would pay about the same. Well, I was used to being rejected for jobs so many times over the last several years that I couldn't believe my good fortune. And all of that money to boot. Well, which direction would I go? Cammie and I weighed a number of options, but in the end, it boiled down to whether I wanted to be a college professor or go on a different track. Well, Bob Cook, the ETHS president, was one of the region's most successful insurance salesmen. And to his credit, he sure sold me on returning to Knoxville <laughs> and launching a new career path. And it's a career path that has led me to where I am tonight. And I can honestly say I have no regrets whatsoever about that decision back in 1981. And I owe a lot to Bob Cook, God rest his soul. We spent five years in Knoxville, and at that job I had to do everything, write grants, raise money, edit the publications, plan and execute programs, mount exhibitions, speak in every corner of the region, and even Cammie and I served cookies and punch at the receptions. And, but clearly within a couple of years I was having fun, and the thoughts of becoming a college professor never entered my mind again. As I reached my fifth year in Knoxville, I began to receive calls from other historical societies and museums looking for executive directors. I loved my job, but I knew I wanted to move up to a larger institution. And after dinner one evening, Cammie and I were talking about the future. And we both distinctly remember my saying that eventually I would like to become the director of one of the state historical societies. But I was only in my late 30s, Paul and thoughts of such a prospect seemed many years down the road. And although I had many opportunities to go elsewhere, I ended up leaving Knoxville for a position that I never would have anticipated. Founded in 1846, the St. Louis Mercantile Library was the oldest library of its kind west of the Mississippi River. And over the years, the library had built up remarkable collections in the, on the history of the American West, railroading, and river transportation. Frankly, I'd never heard of the Mercantile Library. But the headhunter from Corn Ferry was persuasive, and he talked me into applying. I applied and flew to St. Louis with Cammie for the interview. It went well. I liked the board members I met. They liked me, and they offered me the job. So in the summer of 1986, like the Bryans of 1818, we packed up our things, said farewell to family and friends, and headed for the gateway to the West. Well, my time at the Mercantile Library was all too brief just two and a half years, but I learned a lot in, those, in that period. I learned how to manage a larger staff, how to cultivate donors and really raise money, and to oversee and manage a large and historical, historic collection. But maybe most important of all, I learned that noontime lectures could draw crowds. We call them the lunch and lecture series. And believe it or not, the idea for the wildly popular banner lectures at the VHS came with me from St. Louis, a program that was already established there. Well, by year two at the Mercantile Library, I was just beginning to reach my stride. 
My family was getting settled in. Our daughter, who was and still is a baseball fanatic, loved living in a major league city. Our son, Charles, was becoming heavily involved in scouts. Cammy was very active in our church. And as far as we were concerned, we were in St. Louis for the long haul. Then one day in the spring of 1988, I received a letter in the mail that changed our lives. It came from the Virginia Historical Society and was signed by Vernon Getty. Noting the death of Director Donald Haynes the previous January, Mr. Getty informed me that a committee had been appointed to find his successor. He then went on to write, the work of the search committee has brought your name to our attention, and I'm writing to invite you to apply for the position. Now here was a job that I would have easily pursued two years earlier, but my immediate reaction was to say thanks but no thanks. My tenure at the Mercantile Library had been brief and we were just getting settled into St. Louis. I showed the letter to Cammie and she said more as a statement, well, you're not going to apply, are you? <laughs> I said, of course not. I'll write a letter and tell them I'm not interested. Famous last words. For some reason, I held on to that letter for a few days. Then fate or serendipity stepped in when I received a phone call from Milton Klein. Remember, he was that cigar-smoking, intimidating professor from the University of Tennessee? His picture still scares me. <laughs> Melton informed me that he was in St. Louis for a meeting, and he invited, I guess commanded, uh, Cammie and me to attend a dinner with him that evening. Well, after checking with her to make sure we were free, I called Melton to accept his invitation. And that dinner would prove to be another crucial turning point in my life. And had we not been able to join him, I probably never would have come to the Virginia Historical Society. But of course we did, and might we say the rest is history. Toward the end of that dinner, almost as an afterthought, I told Milton about my letter from Virginia. Well, you're going to apply, aren't you, he asked. I said, well, no. And then Milton, is, he could only do practically jumped across the table and yell at me. He said, Charlie, you'd be a fool if you didn't apply. The Virginia Historical Society is one of the great historical institutions in the country, and you owe it to yourself to throw your hat in the ring. Who says you're going to get the job offer anyway, and if they, can, if, if they offer it to you, you can say no. He said you'd be a fool if you didn't apply. Well, driving home that evening, Cammie and I talked, and I said, well, maybe I should apply. She agreed. I sent in the official application. A few weeks later, I was grilling hamburgers on the back, on the back deck, and I received a phone call from Nelson Langford. He told me the search committee had named me as a finalist and they wanted me to come to Richmond to do an interview. Cam and I flew to Richmond on June 14th, our 19th anniversary. I was offered the job that evening. Cam and I were torn. I really wanted the job, but the thought of moving again so soon and uprooting our children gave us pause. I asked VHS President Jack McElroy for some time to think about it. Three days, four days, five days, almost ten days went by. And finally, Jack called me up after several previous, previous calls and said, Charlie, time's running out. You need to let us know your decision. It wasn't easy, but I said yes. And next to Mary and Cammie and having our family, it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. Well, my time is really running out, and I'll spare you the last 20 years. Uh, that's been... <laughs> That's been covered more than adequately in Mel Yurofsky's 175th anniversary of the VHS. But let me close my 20 years at this great old institution with three questions. First, remembering my mother's counsel when I was not accepted in the PhD program at Georgia by sticking with my dream to become a historian, have I made a difference in the lives of others? 
And of course, she and I assumed that I would become a college professor. I'm going to cast that question in a broader context. Have all of us who have devoted careers to history, whether in the classroom as writers or like me, a historian who has worked outside the world of academia, have we made a difference? Have those of you who have supported us, have you made a difference? Well, I think we have. Hundreds of thousands of school children have come through the Virginia Historical Society over the last 20 years. And I can only hope that most of them have been inspired by what they have seen and that they've come away with an interest in the past that will last them a lifetime. I hope that we've been able to help thousands of teachers to become better at their craft. And I hope that through the many programs that we have developed here, we have created a love of history in people who may at one time have hated it. And finally, I've worked for the last 20, 30 years with institutions that collect and preserve the evidence of the past by taking those collections and making them available to the public without censorship, I hope that I've helped strengthen a free and democratic society. Just like our public libraries, our nation's historical societies and museums are part of the bedrock of American democracy. Second question. I was asked the other day what has been the best aspect of my career and what will I miss the most. Certainly for someone who loves history so much, to be able to devote a career to it has been a dream come true. But the best aspect of my career, and I mean this sincerely, and the one I'll miss the most, are the remarkable people with whom I've had the privilege of working. From the days, my days in Knoxville and St. Louis to my last 20 years at the VHS, I've had the best boards that any chief executive officer could ever want. And that's especially true of the VHS Board of Trustees. They deserve tremendous credit for overseeing VHS's transformation into one of America's great historical societies. And along with the board, I've been fortunate to work with 10 exceptionally able chairmen, most re uh, currently uh, Stuart Bryan and most recently Claiborne Robbins. And I've learned something from every one of them. And each one of them have demonstrated leadership that serves as a model for any board to study. And what success I've had at the VHS would not have been possible without their support, along with that of their fellow trustees. And speaking of colleagues, I will sorely miss coming to work every day with people who are first-class professionals in what they do. But more than that, my colleagues on staff have become a, like another family to me. And even though we've been through tough times and we're going through some tough times like now, it's been a happy family. It's a place where people seem to enjoy their work where colleagues are friends, where we work hard but can still laugh and have fun. And I've said it before, and I'll say it once more, I receive too much credit for what has happened at the VHS. Most of the good things that have happened at the VHS over the last 20 years have come across my desk in the form of ideas from the staff. And I will especially miss my colleagues on our senior management team, Bob, Pam, Jim, Bill, Nelson, Francis, Lee, Rick, and Carol. What a remarkable team it's been, and I'm a most fortunate person to have been associated with them. And last, I'm genuinely excited about turning the VHS over to Paul Levengood. His energy, his innate leadership skills, and his solid credentials as a historian will serve the VHS well for many years to come. Paul, I will do whatever I can to help you in any way. Most importantly, stay out of your way. <laughs> we are so fortunate to have him. Now, at long last, I pose my final question. What do I mean by the title of this talk, History Begins at Home? 
During the last several years, I'll let you read that one. During the last several years, many observers like David McCullough have warned that, quote, we are raising a new generation of Americans who, to an alarming degree, are historically illiterate. The tendency has been to blame our teachers and our schools for this problem. But I'm not sure that's fair. From what I've observed, in many ways, history is taught better today than it was when I was in school. And I do wonder, however, if young people today have the benefit of parents and grandparents who tell the stories about the past, stories about their family. I have no proof of this, but I suspect that family storytelling has become a thing of the past, and it's a victim of our modern lifestyle. We're all so busy with our lives, and young people are so programmed in their activities today, both in school and out, that quite often our personal time with family gets crowded out of the schedule. And I'm, I'm sad to say I'm afraid that many children today have little idea of where they come from and who they are. And have we delegated too much responsibility to our teachers? I was fortunate that when I was growing up, history began at home with my grandfather and my mother. And maybe all of us, whether you're a parent or a grandparent, should strive to bring history back home with our own children and grandchildren. Let's do that. And speaking of home, why are Cammie and I staying in Virginia and not returning to our native Tennessee? It was certainly something I assumed we would do when we moved here 20 years ago. Since then, our family has grown. I now have a grandson who lives only a few hours away, and I can only hope that we may have more grandchildren on the way. <laughs> no hint. I would like to be as important in shaping their lives as my grandfather was in shaping mine. And speaking of my grandfather, he died in 1970 when I was at the University of Georgia. My mother died suddenly one evening at Falconhurst 13 years ago. And without her and my grandfather, I discovered that Falconhurst had lost its soul. After much discussion and considerable angst, my sister and I sold it five years ago, not long before her sudden and unexpected death. I still dream about Falconhurst and the people who were its soul. But maybe Cammie and I are staying in Virginia because, ironically, we've come back home. As I told you early in this talk, once Nelson and Polly Bryan settled in Tennessee, many of their offspring continued the cycle of family moves. One of Nelson and Polly's great-grandsons was born and raised on the farm at Shop Springs. But as a young man, he decided that he didn't want to be a farmer. So he moved to a white-collar job some 50 miles away in Faulkner Springs near McMinnville. And there he met a young woman whose maternal line had come to Tennessee from Virginia three generations earlier. And when they married in 1905, two old Virginia family lines merged. That man was my grandfather, and her name was May Faulkner. And again, repeating the cycle, their children and their children's children grew up and left the home at Falconhurst to seek opportunities elsewhere. And when my father married my mother in 1936, again, two Virginia family lines merged. And when my mother, my sister, and I moved in with my grandfather, little did I realize that his influence would lead the great, great, great-grandson of Nelson and Polly Bryan back to Virginia. 
You see, opportunity through history drew me and my family back to Virginia 20 years ago. And think about this. It brought full circle the move my Bryan ancestors had made from the Old Dominion exactly 190 years ago this year. I've come back home to Virginia, and I'll spend the rest of my life here. Thank you for listening to my story, and thank you for giving me the privilege of directing its greatest historical institution for the last 20 years. I bid you all an affectionate farewell. Thank you, Greg.